COVID's been amazing because I can pick up clients anywhere now, right? Three, four years ago, if I was starting my business, I may have only been looking in a pond, I'll call it, that was as big as the Washington DC metro area to find clients because I was gonna have to shake their hand and sit across the table from them and they might they may want me in their office once a week, once a month, whatever. My, my clients, I have clients in Tennessee, Oregon, and Nevada, some of whom I've only met once. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Do you employ or pay workers in other countries? Even if you don't yet, you might soon. Now that remote work is the norm, employees have more freedom than ever to move around. If you want to keep the best people, you have to stay flexible. That's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams. They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, my guest is Scott Sihan. And uh, Scott, as I'm apt to do, I don't do a big guest intro, so I'm just going to kick it over to you. Tell us about yourself and your firm and the work you guys do. All right, Ledge. Thanks so much. It's great. It's great to be here. I'm honored to to be a guest. So my firm is Mod4 Finance, and I am an outsourced and fractional CFO is the easiest way to explain it. And I provide services focused really on four areas, strategic CFO services, which is working alongside founders and leadership teams of small businesses to help them build, execute and grow a solid financial strategy for their organization. Also offer controllership and bookkeeping services, which essentially does day-to-day oversight of a business's finances. So books are always correct and that the owners and team can focus on growth and not have to be worrying about whether or not their accounts are reconciled and their balances are correct at the end of each month. Also specialize in cash flow and budget modeling. So help companies, uh, founders, leadership teams analyze their past, understand their present and see into the future with what I 
would like to think and hope are easy to use and variable based reporting models that are customized to each business's specific needs. And then lastly, I do corporate governance, and that is everything from board of directors and investor relations, cap table management, and then working with teams on their fundraising strategies uh, and equity optimization strategies that may be equity uh, raising, it may be debt, it may be looking for M&A or exit opportunities as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I'm curious when I think about the, I'll say outsourced, you know, financial function that it's one of those things where you kind of say, yeah, I'll need that at some point. But, you know, as you're growing a business and trying to, you know, understand cash flow, trying to understand financing options, what are the the symptomatic things that you would look for as a founder to know that, you know, I ought to be doing this now. And second part of my question is probably most people don't do this in time. So you probably run into a bunch of stuff that has to be, you know, undone. So I always like to think about like, what best practices should people do internally, so that eventually they they could utilize both a fractional and then maybe even a full time CFO? Sure, I think and I think part of the answer I'll give you is is not even specific to a fractional CFO. It could be a CMO, a CRO, or really any any outside resource. And the the way I think most companies find me or the conversations that I have with uh, founders and leadership teams when I'm pitching my services is that they should have a good good and high degree of self-awareness in terms of where they individually feel like they provide the greatest value to the business, right? So starting off is, is a solopreneur, let's just say someone starts a company by themselves and they, they may hire a few people and they, now they've got, they're, they're generating some revenue and they have a small team, but, uh, but the, the founder may still be doing, he may be the, he or she may be the head salesperson. They may also be doing all of the bookkeeping. They may be, doing all of the IT administration, even if it's just provisioning emails, things of that nature. Well, most people, including founders, are going to have a skill set that, that, that they feel that they, they add the most value to the company at. So when, when they get to a point where they, where they have enough, and enough is very arbitrary, but enough additional capital to, begin, to think about beginning to outsource the tasks and the items that are going to be a valuable arbitrage against the time of either the founder or anybody within the organization is when it starts to make uh, economic sense if you're just talking about strict dollars dollars and cents for the business. So let's just say the founder is the best salesperson in the organization and they now have enough money to, to think about, okay, I've got, I'll use a, an arbitrary number. I have $2,000 a month now. I could think about starting to spend on an, an outsourced CMO because I need more better marketing or I need better finance, right? Well, if they know that they are the best salesperson in the organization and they are spending 10 hours of their time a month working on finance and they know that they could purchase, they could get eight of those 10 hours back by coming to speak with uh, Mod4 Finance or an outsourced 
bookkeeping firm, or maybe again, maybe it's marketing. Heck, maybe maybe it's just a simple BPO and getting a getting a virtual assistant. Then it's freeing up the eight hours of time that they were spending doing on spending on those activities to now allow them to go out and have eight more hours to be the best salesperson in the organization. So not only are they is it, are they generating more value for the company by selling for eight more hours, but arguably the resource that they're going to be bringing in, let's say it's a CFO, is going to be higher skilled than they were and more knowledgeable than they were about the finance. So they're actually, they're going to be gaining efficiency there as well. Right. It's that moving away from being that generalist that you need to be as a founder. You need to do all the things and you need to converse it in all the things. At some point, that functional need moves beyond conversant to this just simply isn't the best use of my time, like economically speaking, the opportunity cost is so high. Uh, well, absolutely. But regardless of the size of the business, regardless of how small or regardless of how large, this could go from a company that is pre-revenue or let's say they have $50,000 of revenue a month all the way up to a company that is a, a, a billion dollar a month or you know a $10 billion a year company. The CEO and the folks on the management team in general, but the CEO in particular is always going to need to have a generalist generalist view of the company. They will never, even if they outsource their uh, their finance uh, function to a CF, you know, an outsource CFO or bookkeeping company, and they were spending ten hours a month on it, they're never going to get all ten hours of those mo- ten hours back because it is their their primary job is to understand the entire business and see things holistically. So they're always going to need to be able to remain involved at least uh, at least to a certain level of understanding of how finance functions, how the tech stack functions, how marketing functions, how customer success functions. So they'll never totally <laughs> totally eliminate their need to have an understanding. But in terms of the 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 let's say the the broader expertise in strategy that could come with with someone who f- focuses and specializes on it, they can gain great great efficiency there. And then certainly the smaller the business, the greater efficiency they can gain just on the, the day-to-day operational, operational things. You know, founders who are still doing journal entries and categorizing things in their books and they, they, you, you, can, you can outsource those functions for you know, $10, $10 an hour and, and very, very quickly. So Right, right. And you know, here's an interesting thing, right? And I just, I know this from talking to you you know, over the course of doing work together, that you've done this for, you know, the local flower shop business and all the way up to, you know, like nine figure SaaS type of situation, Series BC, you know, stuff like that. Uh, That's a wildly different scenario. And sometimes you step into companies, just, you know, help a founder. And it's like, oh, you know, first time that I ever sent my books to somebody else. And sometimes you step into these companies that are X hundred people and there's all kinds of stuff to do. I have to imagine that's that's different. And do you have a different experience when you what are the problems that you step into on the the large scale? Well, one of the one of the things that's been so exciting for me in the last I would say 12 to 18 months. It's only it's only been that long since I took the full 
uh, let's just say full plunge into running my own company and I would say turning off the job notifications that used to get emailed to me to LinkedIn. That was like this big commitment. Like I no longer want to receive notifications about what jobs may be out there. I have created my own job. I have my own company, right? So in the past 12 to 18 months, I've had the great, I've been greatly fortunate to be able to do discovery on my own to find out where I feel like one, my services are going to be of most value and two, where I enjoy working most. Is it in the the local corner retail shop or is it all the way up to a a software development firm that is that's doing a hundred million dollars a year in revenue? And and I've I've had both of those things as clients in the last year. And what I've in again, what what I've discovered is that. I don't get as great of enjoyment out of working with the larger companies simply because the smaller the organization, the greater the impact you really feel like you can have. Now, that that may not necessarily be exciting for everybody. You know, they're, they're, on the flip side, the smaller the organization, there are oftentimes situations where you as the service provider need to be more flexible or understand you have to have flexibility on payment terms, right? When I was when I was doing business with a company that was that was a hundred million dollar a year of business, I could charge a higher rate for my for my time, and I knew the bill was always going to get paid, right? Working working with a smaller company, maybe you have to negotiate your rates going to get negotiated down a little bit. You may have to be flexible on payment terms, but on the other side, one thing that excites me about working with smaller businesses, as I mentioned, is that you feel like you can have a greater impact. You get to know the team better, but also you, depending upon the structure of the business and the, the flexibility of the, of the founding team, you may have an opportunity to earn equity, which, which I love, which I love being able to do. And when, when and where appropriate with my clients, I've, I've negotiated my monthly or hourly rate down in in lieu of being able to get to get a small stake in the business so that I feel like uh, not only so I feel like I'm invested in that in that the work that I'm doing for them could multiply in value but also so that they have the comfort the owners and the team have the comfort of knowing that I'm invested as well right right yeah equity compensation gosh that's a whole other thing i mean due diligence around you know it sounds like such a good idea as a provider and then you realize, you know, years later, uh, I've had this experience of how much sort of valueless assumed equity you have in, in something that, you know, so you need to think carefully, I guess, being in the being in the financial seat, at least you can <laughs> you can be be part of the value statement there. Sure, I've I've had clients where I've never even brought up the conversation one, either because I could read the tea leaves in terms of maybe maybe they're not even set up with equity. Maybe maybe the company's been a 100% 100% solo owned company for 5 years and it's not even worth the conversation. But then there are other times too where maybe if it's a short-term engagement or there may not be a, an opportunity for something longer term that it that wouldn't even make any sense to 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 have that conversation. And then there are other situations too where yeah, maybe I'm coming in to help, but if I maybe, I would say if I if I don't believe that there is any 
substantial upside to taking equity, then I wouldn't ask for it. But I also try to discriminate <laughs> with the companies that I work with and that I, I only want to work with companies that are growing and do have a substantial amount of upside. So <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, I suppose it's not fun to work for so something. I, I don't think there's a situation where one of my clients might, currently might be listening to this and say, wait a second, he never, <laughs> he never asked us about equity. What does that say about our future? So no. I mean, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I suppose if they're circling the drain, it's not too fun to manage their finances anyway. So yeah, but you know, you help people through like pivotal decision making cash flow is everything i mean yeah we we hope as business owners that we have you know this sort of future leverage uh, but on a day to day day to day basis you know especially if you're bootstrapping but but even if you're not you know the capital isn't endless and revenue and how we can deploy it makes an absolutely tremendous difference at any scale any any business that you're working with is just orders of magnitude more spend if it's order of magnitude more revenue. Yep. <laughs> so one other thing I, I'm curious about is, you know, how how do you advise companies as to whether they should use fractional resources and fractional leadership versus, you know, people that are, you know, sort of, I've got to hire these folks. I need to have them as part of my team. I need to pay them on on payroll. Do you experience that? As much as it, it, there's been, a, I think, a change in the way people are thinking no, about I, that. Now, of course, I have a strong bias of if I'm if I'm even talking to somebody in a business development opportunity. Actually, I shouldn't say I have a strong bias. My my, my bias, I would say, would be towards wanting to to win win the business and win the work. But I will say i I have had I've had a handful of conversations and meetings where I've been referred to a company and. And I'll meet with the founder and they'll say, look, I, I don't I don't know what I need. Do I need do I need someone for five hours a week or 10 hours a week or do I need to go out and hire somebody full time? And then in that regard, I usually start the conversation back to where we you know, I, I mentioned earlier and I, I try to get inside the the mind and the schedule of the of the CEO to find out how they're spending how, how they're spending their time. And how much of, you know, how, how much are they, time and resources, are, are they dedicating towards certain areas of the company? And if it's a larger organization too, then maybe they have, uh, maybe they already have somebody full-time in, in finance. I, I often come in and work with companies that, that do have a full-time bookkeeper or controller, but that person's time is being is is now the one that's being consumed too much. It's not it's not even the the CEO. But the the more strategic the more strategic and planning items are starting to p- potentially outstrip the expertise of the uh, of let's say of the controller. And that's when that's when I'll have conversations with the you know the the founder and they'll they'll or the CEO and they'll say is this person the wrong person for the job, the controller? Meaning like, is it, should this person know how to be able to build me a three-year model and do backward-looking metrics and put together a pitch deck so that we can go out and raise equity? Is that, do I have the wrong person in the job or am I starting now to need services and expertise that this, that this particular person or as I hired into that role just wasn't specifically designed for. So. Right. Right. 
Yeah, what is, I mean, that brings me to a thought, you know, to what is an ideal finance function? Uh, you know, you kind of get this idea in your head that, I don't know, I need a finance person, you know, but then you kind of go, I, I don't really know what that is because there's all kinds of, I don't know, manage my money and make sure I don't spend it on the wrong things or like who pays me? I don't know. Did anybody send an invoice for that? Like, you know, it's like, and it's funny, like you, you get the picture of like this sort of mini company mess, but uh, you and I both have seen eight digit companies that don't build their customers. <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, that's kind of a problem. So. Yeah. Well, interesting. It, it always, what, it largely depends upon the complexity of the business and complexity. The way that I typically evaluate it is more geared, geared towards the number of transactions that actually flow through the books in terms of the volume of transactions, not in terms of the dollar volume. I have seen, I've seen very, very simple businesses that do 10 to 12 million dollars a year they may only have two or three customers and they send out one invoice a month and they could be firm fixed price engagements and the company may employ 10 people but payroll could be very very simple and yeah the numbers may be large or seem large to you know what would otherwise perhaps be a small you know a million dollar a year business may look up at a 10 million dollar a year business and think it's enormous and it's complex it may be a lot, a lot simpler. And on the flip side, I've I've dealt with companies that are five hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars a year. Let's take a, uh, a a Main Street retail shop, for example, that do does a million dollars a year on fifty and sixty dollar uh, transactions. Now you're starting to talk about a huge volume of transactions, lots of reconciliations, fluctuations in cash flow. There are coupons and discount codes that they need to be tracking. And oftentimes it's, it, it's smaller businesses. There may be uh, a, a, a smaller amount or a less amount of expertise when it does come to the finance function, simply because at a, a million dollars a year they in revenue we're talking, they may not be able to you know, afford a, a certain high level of services. But if you're talking about a thousand to two thousand transactions a month. There's a there's a high amount of expertise that might be needed in order to do reconciliations and make sure that that company knows at the end of each month how much cash they actually do have. What are their profits? Are their books being closed? How much how much can they reinvest? So, the, the a smaller revenue business with a lot more transactions may have a greater need and may actually be far more complex than a higher volume dollar business that is that is arguably much more simple in terms of its structure and its transactions. Right, right. So how you would build that team, then you would you might recommend just looking at transaction volume as a proxy for, you know, how do people at least think about I need help with this because I might be doing it wrong. I guess it seems like more opportunities to to screw things up, you know, the, the more yeah. Now, volume. In, in terms of the, the the volume of transactions, you, usually that is a that's a proxy for the kind of bookkeeping or controllership support that you may need, which are more you know transaction level based. Somebody who has a high attention to detail, but an incredible familiarity with 
with certain accounting systems. I'll use QuickBooks as an example, QuickBooks Online, because that seems to be what everyone uses and 100% of my clients are on it. I, I don't have a I don't have a prejudice towards it or against it, but I mean, it's, it's kind of where everybody, where everybody ends up. And it is a, it is a fantastic product. I use it to run my own business, but finding somebody who knows QuickBooks inside and out and all they do is QuickBooks reconciliations and QuickBooks transactions is, can be really, really, really effective for a business that is a high volume of transactions. And they could even do the reconciliations. And then up from there, Having somebody who I, I say is a, a controller type level would be somebody who can manage manage the bookkeeper. Some companies have more than one bookkeeper if it's an enormous amount of transactions. Having a controller who has the final review of the books at the end of the month and and kind of goes in with the sharp the sharp pencil and makes sure that everything is correct before handing either handing the books off to the the founder, the CEO, or the owner or if there is a, C, a CFO in place, handing them off to them so that the CFO can can make the final recommendations. They, they can then take the final results knowing that they are 100% correct and begin to make the, the prescriptive inferences and recommendations to the owners saying, based upon what happened last month, here's what I think you should do. Either you should reinvest the funds doing this or based upon your projected sales, you came out this far ahead of budget or you overspent in this area and here's, and here's how you need to make, make adjustments. So, and, and th th that's one area where, you know, having a CFO, even if it's a fractional one can be of, can be of great help because if, if they're doing their job correctly and, and, and working with the, the, the team properly, they're going to be the ones making the, the strategic recommendations as a result of, of uh, how the business performed, they may not be the one doing all of the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's. So. Do you ever have the experience of the, like, I, I often, you know, in the sales seat, I'll, you know, everything has to, well, oh, I got to check with my CFO or if, well, I don't know if I sign that deal, my, my CFO is going to kill me, you know, type of thing. I just wonder, is that, is that a smoke screen? You know, is it, is everybody hide behind the CFO as the, you know, the guy who needs to, or gal who needs to control the money? Well, I, I, I'm always happy to be the, be the excuse for why, uh, why someone <laughs> can't make a decision. And I, I, I allow any of my clients to use that, that reason say, well, I got to talk to my right. CFO about it, or, or this exceeds my approval threshold. But in, in, in most businesses, the, the larger a company gets and large in, in terms of, again, not necessarily dollar volume, speaking now more in terms of complexity of, of the org chart and the org structure, as you start building an accounting team and you start having distributed budgets where your tech team and your marketing team and your customer success team all have different budgets and they need to be submitting purchases, then, then in those types of companies, you do need to have internal controls that are in place that say contracts, for you know, purchase orders, of zero to $5,000 can be signed by a department level manager. Uh, purchase orders from five to $25,000 can be signed, have to be signed by the controller. And anything over 25,000, I'm just making up numbers, needs to have dual approval by the CFO and the CEO. And th those things are very, th th those are very common in larger businesses. And as, as company get, companies get larger, 
they're going to have annual financial audits done. If they're if they're doing things properly, they'll have an independent accounting firm come in and do either a compilation, a review, or a full audit of their books. And those are things that auditors will look for. In fact, they'll they'll always look for them in their review of the situation. Is that is what what kind of operational controls are there in the business to make sure that one person within the organization can't can't run amok, right? You you can't have uh, a, a first, you know, a, a new hire in the sales team cutting million dollar purchase orders without somebody knowing about it. And uh, I would love to find that organization. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, right, right. I get that. And which is interesting because, you know, controls would be very closely tied to operational frameworks, right? And what can or can't the business afford to do and, and where? And that makes me think, you know, how do you how do you as a CFO interface with the other leaders in the business? Like say I'm a chief revenue officer, right? Like I just, I just want to close deals, man. Like leave me alone. Right. You know, I mean, probably not exactly that, that flippant, but you know, COO wants to buy a bunch of technology stuff because everybody's up in arms about such, such doesn't work together. We need a $50,000, you know, ERP. And so how do you, how do you arrange for, and is it, is it one of those sort of like, I don't want to say like a diplomatic kind of role there? Like you got to sort out everybody. Everybody wants the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Well, it, it it all starts with good with good budgeting and planning. And with, with all of my clients, uh, I will work with them. Uh, I think just about all my clients, I've, I've either worked with them to build uh, an operational financial model that goes out 24 to 36 months to give them broader projections into what hap what's happening with the business. But then we also use that model to build to build a, the budget for the following year. And when I'm building a budget, I try to make it as conversational might be the wrong word, but it should be an inclusive process, right? All of the, all of the, the key stakeholders within the organization who are going to have budgetary responsibility or have the really the ability to, to spend money should be in the room and have input into what the levers are that are going to be pulled and changed on that on that financial model that's going to help us create what what the budget is for the following year. And this this goes both on the revenue side and on the expense side. And oftentimes, you know, one implies the other. If you don't if if it's going to be a down year in revenue or you or you change your projected growth rate from 20% to 5%, well then uh, if you have certain operational profit margins that you want to maintain, then you're going to have to trim something on the uh, on the expense side. So ideally, all of the folks that you just talked about that, that let's say halfway through the year are going to come and make a case as to why they, they need a new $50,000 ERP system. Well, unless they have just been hired into the business, ideally, they would have been part of that of that budget meeting back in November or December. Now budgets change, right? They're not they're not fixed in stone, so things are things can always change and things are negotiable. But those conversations will oftentimes happen with maybe not all of the people who were in the but in the budget meeting, right? If this if the CRO needs a new um, ERP system, 
unless it requires a ton of integration work, like maybe the CTO doesn't need to be in that conversation, but at least the CRO and the CEO and everyone's going to be in there and the, the, the person's going to have to make a business case. And if, if, if there's not enough additional profits in the business to support it, then, then you have conversations about, okay, well then where can other, where can other things be, be cut, right? If we have to produce a 10% net margin by the end of the year, and this $50,000 is going to eat into that, then we've got to, we've got to make a haircut somewhere else in order to, in order to accommodate. Right. And if you're, Someone like me, you don't have hair to cut, so you need to be uh, <laughs> really, really good on your budgeting. What are maybe like two or three of the major problems that you you could see people avoid? You know, like like when you walk into a company, what are some things that you wish didn't happen prior to your involvement that you need to undo? Not necessarily undo, but I'm. There are oftentimes I'm I'm surprised at how little of an understanding or insight that a business may have into what their projected cash flows are, both near term and long term. But at the same time, I'm not surprised in that oftentimes that's where the my, the conversation starts. People will call me and say, I you know one of the first things I need help with is understanding what you know what 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 are our cap projected cash flows over the next 60 days, 90 days, or even, uh, even 12 months. So that that's one. And, uh, they're, you know, and I'll sit down and, and help them build, build out that model, both for near term and long term. Second thing is, uh, on the budgeting side. And again, it, it kind of goes along with the first, the first item that I mentioned, which, which is cash flow and that, I'm oftentimes surprised at how little budgeting or how or how there is no budgeting in the company. But also at the same time, I recognize that maybe one of the reasons I'm I'm being brought in is because those things don't exist. But even at the most basic level, where you know, there there are times I've walked into businesses that are doing a couple million dollars a year and there is no budget in, in any way that says we're gonna spend. X amount on sales this year and X amount on operational software. And we are going to spend Y amount on professional services. And we think our accounting costs are going to be this. Like there's just, there's just nothing and money just kind of flowing in and out. And the businesses are being run on intuition. Now, often it's incredible how, how, how great some people are at being able to just calibrate and feel their way through how much money they're bringing in and how much they're spending. And we're talking on millions of dollars a year without actually like flipping the company upside down. I've seen people do it really, really well. Now, again, I'd say seeing it done really well is probably more the exception than the, than the rule because I've also run into some disasters before. But I would say budgeting and cash flow planning are the two biggest things that even on like the most basic and elementary level, there are times where I walk in and I'm surprised that there there may not be anything that exists that exists. And th- those are areas that, you know, there, there's never, you know, in any business, there's never any shame like, oh, my gosh, how could you not have these things? For me, it's exciting because those are areas where I know that I can I can confidently add you know, really, really quick value and, and score a couple of quick wins because like, you know, as any service provider, I want to make sure that 
that, that I feel like I'm bringing value to the organization. And to do that quickly, I want to find areas that I think I can help relatively immediately. And those are often two things that I can, that, that I look to first. Yeah. I, you're reminding me of story, you know, when I had more of an operations or COO type of role and just doing the basic analysis of expenses. What is this? Like we pay this $3,000 thing every month from this company I've never heard of. And somebody just strokes that check and, you know, just dig into that and say, like, do we even use this thing? And what what is that? You know, and why? What is the assumption by which we just continue to pay this bill? Because it's not big enough to ignore, but it's also or it's not big enough to care because we do so much money or so much transactions. But I mean, you're just bleeding out money. And that happens now, especially in these world of like everything is a SaaS subscription. You know, like how many $10 a month cuts can you take for users on a thing that you didn't even remember that you were paying for? Anymore? Right. It adds up and you see something that's $49.99 a month to Canva. And it's been in there. I'll look back in the books. It's been there for 17 months and I'll say, okay, so what kind of use are we getting out of Canva? And it's, oh, we, we haven't we still pay for that. <laughs> you know, and if you haven't used that in a year, that's $600 that essentially was lit on fire, you know. And <laughs> right. 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 But and a lot of the things that I'm that I'm talking about, too, in terms of being able to come in and add quick value, whether it's an outsourced or independent CFO, these these types of things or approaches are common across across the stack. It could be a CTO that comes in day one and says, let me let, let me see how you're using AWS. How can we opt optimize your reserved instances. The, the, that's about as deep as my mind gets. <laughs> a, a CTO could come in and, and look in terms of how servers are being being run and optimized and save a, save a couple thousand dollars a month overnight just by having a 20 minute or 30 minute look under the hood. And th- those are things that, that I try to do, try to do uh, on the finance side. And oftentimes when I'm putting a proposal together for a client, uh, I'll ask them, I'll say, hey, will you Will you give me view only access into into QuickBooks? One, so I can see how they're they're structured, see how many transactions a month are going through there. Because as I mentioned before, oftentimes transaction quantity can add to the complexity of the business. It doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily driven by the dollar volume, but it allows me to have a very quick view into maybe some of the ways that they're spending their money. And I can go back and I haven't even signed a contract with the, the client yet and say, hey. I was looking in there. Here's my proposal. And by the way, did you notice that you're spending, you know, X amount a month on this, this, and this? Or did you know your gross margins have been declining by 3% a month for the last seven months? That might be something you want to look into, right? So, and even if I don't, maybe we end up working together, maybe we don't, but at least I could feel like I provided value so that if the timing isn't right to work with me now, maybe six months from now or a year from now, if it's just not right at the current time, they may think back and say, you know what, he, you know, he 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 told us to look at our gross margins and figure out what the issue was. And we discovered that there actually was a problem and they, they may remember that. So, yeah, well, you speak to good customer experience uh, pre and post sale, no matter what. Right. I mean, that that is exactly the kind of stuff that you want to be. Cool. Cool. Well, I always ask guests at the end to sort of put on your futurist hat for, you know, a couple minutes and think about what 
stuff should people be worried about going forward? A lot of times this question lately is colored by, you know, pandemic this and COVID that, but, you know, I'm just curious, what's, what are you reading and thinking about and what, what's going to matter in business, you know, over the next couple of years? Yeah. I, for fear of sounding like a lot of other, uh, pundits and people you may may hear out there, but I don't think there's ever been a better time to be an entrepreneur, particularly, uh, you know, a solopreneur getting getting an independent business off the off the ground. And and here's why I, I don't think there's going to be a decreasing need for fractional or outsourced or independent C XOs fill fill in the gap. And it doesn't have to be C-level. That just happens to be where I am at my, at my level of career. It could be outsourced bookkeepers, controllers, business development representatives, right? But long gone are the days of, of people needing a substantial amount of capital to get a business off the ground and having to buy so many tools to, to get things going, right? I mean, they're, they're scalable SaaS tools that, that allow people to start and operate businesses are so much more easily available than they than they were 10 or 15 years ago. And that's that's never going to go away. Right. So I started a business in 2007 and we, we grew pretty quickly. And by the by the time we got to 2010, we had 45 employees um, and we were doing a little over 10 million dollars a year in revenue. And this is only 11 years ago. And we were buying local, we were buying servers, our own servers to install in our own rented office building to be able to run our own email exchange server on. We were paying an outsourced IT guy to set up a VPN network for us that never worked, you know, or was spotty. So that when we traveled for business, we could still, that I could still access QuickBooks. I had QuickBooks living locally on the server in our office building, right? That was that was just how you built and ran a business, and you know you needed you needed five thousand dollars to be able to buy a DL three eighty server from HP that could run all of your email and run your QuickBooks, like 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 just tear all of that up and forget and and throw it all away, right? You don't need any of that anymore. So, and the other the other great thing that that I think has been brought about by COVID now. Is that you know, love it or hate it, people have have understood that you can do business with anyone anywhere. I mean, is it great to sit across the table from them? And are, and are there certain times where meetings are going to be more productive than than if you're on video? Absolutely. But the barriers to where you can do business and who you can do business with have been torn down. And for I think the higher level service providers, or at least the ones who are overly confident in their abilities to sell and deliver their services. And I'll count myself amongst them. COVID's been amazing because I can pick up clients anywhere now, right? Three, you know, three, four years ago, if I was starting my business, I may have only been looking at a pond, I'll call it, that was as big as the Washington DC metro area to find clients because I was going to have to shake their hand and sit across the table from them. And they might, they may want me in their office once a week, once a month, whatever. My, my clients, I have clients in Tennessee, Oregon, and Nevada, some of whom I've only met once. Right. And I have no problem competing with the, the 
the the local the local service providers, the ones who are locally in that pond, who you know either maybe they provide great service, but they're not as confident in their sales, or they're not as high touch as I may like to be. So, I love the fact that 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 everything is wide wide open now geographically in terms of being able to win business. It's a great opportunity. The barriers to starting a company are are next to nothing now and also the barriers to being able to find really good help and support are, are torn down now as well. I have folks who work for me on the other side of the globe on an hourly on an hourly basis. You know, they do work for me when I'm sleeping and I wake up and the work is taken care of and it's it's fantastic. 10, 15, 20 years ago, you were going to be limited by putting an ad in the newspaper, maybe, you know, early internet, you could find somebody, but they were going to be local to you and you were going to have to have coffee with them and they were going to have to sit in the same room as you. So I, I don't see things getting, I don't see things getting worse in the near, in the near term. I, I think it's a fantastic opportunity to start a company and I, I couldn't be more excited about the future. I love the optimism. We don't get enough of that these days. So it's nice to, nice to have it. Well, Scott, thanks for hanging out. Really appreciate the insights. And if anybody wants to contact you or you know follow you, uh, where do they do that? Sure. So the best and easiest place to find me is at mod4.finance. That's M-O-D, the number four, dot finance. And all of my information is there. I can be emailed scott at mod4.finance. And that's the that's the best way to find me. I'm on. You can ping me on LinkedIn. I'm not terribly active on Twitter or social media or anything, but uh, but website and email are the best ways to get me. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks for hanging out. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B two B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.